Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, we're going to be talking to Abby Martin. Uh, Abby, of course, has done a documentary on Gaza. She's been on the ground in Gaza previously. She knows a lot about Gaza. And so uh, it'd be interesting to get, like, the perspectives of somebody who's been on the ground, knows people in Gaza, yeah. and is now watching all of this brutality unfold against the people of Gaza. Yeah, and the caricaturish view of who these people are and their hopes and dreams and aspirations and what their lives are like in, you know, in normal time, quote-unquote normal times. Um, so, yeah, very excited to get to talk to her. Yeah, but before we get to that, this is kind of a related issue here. So we had some protesters. Now, the groups were, was it Jewish Voice for Peace? Jewish Voice for Peace. Not in our name? If not now, Oh, if not now, And uh, DSA branch. And DSA. So these three groups, which are these like lefty groups, by the way, they believe in Mm -hmm. nonviolence. That's, they stand on that. That's what they say they believe in, right? They went to the DNC headquarters in Washington, D.C. And they did the most standard example you would ever see of a peaceful, 100% nonviolent protest. And then I'll let you take it over from here and lay out for everybody what happened. This is astonishing. Yeah, so there was a DCCC fundraiser going on inside, which I believe they knew um, that was happening. And so their goal was to uh, block the entrance. They were sort of arm in arm, singing, candlelight vigil. This was the scene as it was unfolding. So singing there, which side are you on? Arm and arm. That's from the Candles. Civil Rights Movement handbook. Like, that is literally like directly from like Martin Luther King and all of his acolytes. Like, it's exactly what that is. Yeah. And calling for a ceasefire, which has been the consistent call. And by the way, this isn't like the first protest these groups have been involved in. They've been doing nonviolent, peaceful protests um, and actions all across the country. Then the cops showed up um, and specifically Capitol Police showed up. Let's take a look at how that went down. Oh shit! So look, I just got thrown. People getting thrown down the stairs. So you can see an incredibly aggressive response. Um, And by the way, this is all recorded on videotape. Dave Weigel, a reporter with Semaphore, was there documenting what was going on. The cops proceeded to, you know, drag people down the stairs. Uh, One of the groups, I think it was If Not Now, said that somewhere around 90 of the protesters were actually injured in some capacity. They broke out the pepper spray the cops did and were spraying protesters. Again, this is all recorded on video, exactly what went down. Now, let me just say, they evacuated the DNC building. Yeah. So like whatever thing was going on there, whatever fundraiser, whatever goofy nonsense, whatever corrupt gathering it was, mm-hmm. it was dispersed. It was over and done with like it, it was a wrap. Right. So in a sense, the protesters won in that it's like, hey, we're here to sort of shut this down peacefully. That's exactly what they did. We're here to make you uncomfortable. We're exactly. here to 
make you face the fact that, you know, first of all, the slaughter is ongoing and you're doing nothing about it. Second of all, you've got 80 percent of Democrats, the people you are supposed to represent who want a ceasefire. And the overwhelming majority of you are standing staunchly against that. And 68 so, percent of the country, by the way. Yes, that's agrees. right. A ceasefire. majority of Republicans support 55 percent of Republicans a ceasefire that's right. right now. So. That was, you know, that's the goal of the protest, to make power uncomfortable. And uh, as I said, you can see on the video the overwhelming, you know, brutal response of the Capitol Police. And yet, given that set of facts, this is how Democratic Congressman Brad Sherman, by the way, top recipient of APAC funds, uh, reacted and his just blatant lies that he told about what unfolded. Put this up on the screen. He says, was just evacuated from the DNC after pro-terrorist, anti-Israel protesters grew violent. None of that happened. Pepper spraying police officers, again, didn't happen. And attempting to break into the building also didn't happen. Thankful to the police officers who stopped them and for helping me and my colleagues get out safely, goes on to say, apparently these pro-Hamas demonstrators want Republicans to prevail in the next congressional election. I was losing my goddamn mind reading through some of the right-wing reactions. Yeah. To it. Now, this guy's a Democratic congressman. Yeah. So, in a sense, he's just as guilty. I love, like, the, the finger-wagging that you have to vote for us even though I just described you as pro-terrorist. Right. Right? Right. It's like, that is like the, the double whammy <laughs> nice level, of corporate Democrat nonsense all in one tweet. So, but, I, you know, I was scrolling through my feed, and what did I see? There were, like, Josh Hawley was out there. He was calling these protesters pro-genocide protesters. I saw other very prominent right-wing accounts. I forget the guy's name. Something Price. He's this big, oh, like... Greg Price, that dude? I think, I think it's that dude, right? He's out there. I believe he said it was they're pro-terrorist or pro-Hamas. I saw descriptions of them as Hamas sympathizers. I saw descriptions of them as being violent. I saw some right-wing uh, account sympathizing with the police, saying these poor police were attacked by these violent rioters people call them rioters i saw them referred to as like violent antifa like every negative label you you could think of they threw it at these protesters and what's astonishing to me is like you couldn't draw up on paper a more platonic ideal of a scenario of perfectly peaceful protest in the spirit of the civil rights movement yeah that is as non-violent as non-violent can be and it reminds me of Remember those cartoons that described Martin Luther King as violent? There was yeah. like this cartoon of him standing there saying, we're going to be back again tomorrow for a, a, a peaceful protest. And then you see like the city burning behind him. And that was the attempt of the right and the pro-segregationists at the time to say like, this isn't nonviolent. This is actually very violent and we're blaming you for violence. Well, now in retrospect, everybody looks at that and they were like, of course MLK wasn't violent. He was staunchly committed to, vi to nonviolence. And that's exactly what's happening with these protesters. They could not have done it more perfectly. Oftentimes, I'm very critical of activists and protesters because I feel like, oh, they're not doing, you know, they're they're giving optical wins to the other side or they're not targeting the right entity when they're protesting and they're misfiring. I've been very critical of many activists on many issues. But when I look at this, they did it by the letter absolutely perfectly and they get relentlessly smeared. And the fact that we live in like this postmodern fantasy world where people just make up their own truth. It's not like the truth. It's like, this right. is my truth that they're pro-Hamas terrorists or whatever, terrorist sympathizers or whatever. And then they run with it. And then the narrative spreads where it dominates like 50% of the conversation to the point where mainstream media outlets are reporting some, uh, you know, CNN. parroting some of the claims that they're saying Democratic Congress people are doing it. Yep. And they make it like, it, like, even best case scenario for us now is like, oh, it's a both sides thing. 
You know, and it's like, no, no, at no part was was this, you know, the anti-protesters were correct. Uh, at no point, like, this is clearly one side is just right, doing the right thing, standing up for the moral position, doing it in an intelligent way, and they still get relentlessly smeared, which That's means, right. what's the logical conclusion to that? Shut up and accept the fact that, you know, uh, tens of thousands of innocent civilians are being killed, and... The U.S. is going to support that. And if you make a peep against it, you love terrorists or you love Hamas. Yep, that's right. That's exactly right. And uh, CNN played a key role in this. They immediately had Brad Sherman, the guy I mentioned before, on to tell his fanciful, you know, recount how they were supposedly storming the building. Didn't happen. Pepper spring cops didn't happen, et cetera, et cetera. And this is aired uncritically. And so when uh, Abby Phillips, the journalist, journalist, I use that term loosely. She's also the one you'll recall who's implicated in the whole Elizabeth Warren uh, accusing Bernie of being a sexist. She was the quote unquote journalist on that case too. So that lady, anyway. So this morning she puts out a tweet where she's like, well, what Brad Sherman was saying here wasn't confirmed last night, but now the cops have confirmed Uh, that here's the tweet the U.S. Capitol Police put out. I think they have this guys, throw this up. Tonight, six officers were treated for injuries ranging from minor cuts to being to being punched. I'm not sure. Oh, okay. One Just person reading. has been arrested for assault on an officer. We appreciate our officers who kept these illegal and violent protesters back and protected <sighs> everyone in the area. So she's saying, Oh, well, the cop said that they were violent. So we have done. video confirmed. It's, we have video. We literally have video. There was literally journalist Dave Weigel who was on the scene, who recorded video, who he uploaded, who said directly, Brad Sherman was wrong. They were not trying to ent- enter the building. There was no pepper spray coming from the protesters. It was all coming from the cops. So for someone at CNN, just to uncritically be like, well, the cops back up my point of view. So that's it. I'm done. I'm not even going to look at the video. It's unbelievable. I hate this cry bully shit. This cry bully shit where, where like you have the most peaceful protesters in the world asking for peace. These are like anti-war protesters who want a ceasefire and want innocent civilians to stop being killed. And you have these people who are like, you know, we're the victims. We're the victims of these peaceful, nonviolent protesters. It's like you're not victims. You guys are uh, standing in solidarity with a government that's carrying out an ethnic cleansing this very moment. Like, you're not victims. It reminds me of what the Israeli government does all the time. Like, no matter what the facts are on the ground of them being the aggressor, it's always like, we're the victims! We're the victims! People are being really unfair to us. And it's like, enough. At least if you're going to take the barbaric position, own it. And be like, yes, I am in favor of the continued bombing and slaughter of innocent people. At least own it. I find the fact that the conversation is so disingenuous, that's what drives me crazy. Like, the fact that they people just casually describe these protesters as pro-Hamas or, or uh, pro-genocide right. or pro-terrorist, like, the, the violent, it, that's the stuff that I just can't, like, it just drives me crazy because it's just so disconnected from reality and it makes me feel like I live in some sort of simulation where... People just obscure and don't acknowledge the very obvious truth right in front of their faces. There's also, you know, it becomes really clear that these uh, claims and of concern about anti-Semitism are very empty and only pertain to critique of Israel and not actual anti-Semitism. I mean, keep in mind, many of the protesters at this action, as have been at many of the actions, are actually Jewish. And there's some this, of the groups are explicitly Jewish. Yes. Jewish Voices for Peace was involved in this protest. And not in my name is another explicitly Jewish group that I don't think was involved in this particular protest, but has been involved in many peaceful protests. And there's attempt to erase 
that there's any divergence on this view that if you are Jewish, you must be Zionist as well and completely buy into that ideology, completely buy into what it is that the Netanyahu government is doing. And I find that to be incredibly essentializing and anti-Semitic. And so, you know, there's an element of that as well that I find so incredibly disturbing and disingenuous that they don't really care about actual instances of anti-Semitism. They certainly don't care about instances of um, Islamophobia. It's just an attempt to block any sort of critique of Israel and of the Israeli government's actions that our own government is aiding and abetting. Yeah, it's a power protection racket is, is what it is. Yeah. You know, that that's the bottom line. And it just, it's grotesque beyond imagination. Absolutely. And I don't think that these young people, you know, Sagar and I actually had this debate on breaking points, like what kind of a lasting impression this leaves on young people. And he was of the opinion of like, yeah, they'll kind of the like, they'll move on. Like, he's like, it's a foreign country. It's not our soldiers that are involved here. They're not the ones dying. And I just don't see it that way at all. I think this is really is this generation's like Iraq war moment where you had no idea that our government directly aiding uh, ethnic cleansing and potential genocide was on the table. And now you know that that's on the table. Like you can't you can't unsee it and you can't unsee the treatment at, you know, the supposed like, you know, oh, the saviors of democracy and the ones that are supposed to be so good and enlightened and care about human rights. Your treatment at the hands of those people. I don't think that's something that you can ever put back in place or ever unsee. And it's also strategically idiotic because Democrats are just at this point begging for the young people not to vote for them. Yeah, that's, that's what right. it is. It's like even from just a raw politics perspective, strategic perspective, for the love of God, you have to at least pretend to give a shit about young people's concerns. You know, they're, the White House is hemorrhaging support among young people at the moment, hemorrhaging support among Muslim Americans and Arab Americans, hemorrhaging support among Latino voters as well for different reasons, albeit mostly economic issues on that front. But like... But there's just no, like, it's just head in the sand. It's you know? not just head in the sand. It's out and out contempt and smears, you know? Right. I mean, you had Karine Jean-Pierre from the White House podium saying that calling for a ceasefire is repugnant. <laughs> the position held by 80% of your voters. You think that's repugnant? Allowing the censure vote and some Democrats voting to censure Rashida Tlaib, the one Palestinian American who has been incredibly courageous and has always made it clear that she is horrified by the loss of Israeli life as well. You're going to censure her because you read something into, uh, you know, the river to the sea chant and you that's your priority over, you know, the actual horrors unfolding in Gaza. I don't think that's something you forget. I really don't. That's right. All right. Well, this is a pathetic story and uh, much love to all the protesters who went out there and were brave and put their bodies on the line and got relentlessly smeared in the process. I want all of these politicians who are enabling these atrocities that are being committed with our tax dollars in Israel, in, in by Israel, in Gaza. I want I want them, none of them to feel comfortable going anywhere. I want them to feel like they have to face, come face to face with their own hypocrisy. Peacefully, and though. Everybody, of course, yeah. 100% peacefully. But I want them to feel that discomfort. I want them to be nervous that they can't just go to dinner and not have to think about this issue because the stakes are obviously couldn't be higher. Yeah, that's right. It's just like that protester did to Elizabeth Warren. Where Elizabeth mm-hmm. Warren was eating dinner with her husband and she walks up and says, I've lost 68 family members in Gaza. And she's like, I'm bi- I'm like, I'm at dinner. You can't see. 
it just really rips the mask off of like the fake civility and decorum Chris that they Coons do. on the train confronted by Aaron Maté. Um, I saw Trudeau um, confronted in Canada yeah, in by some, some bar restaurant. There. Yeah, mm-hmm. I saw that too. Keep yeah. it going, man. Keep it going. That, I mean, it's 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 the most driven I've seen young people yet. You know, being directly involved, protesting, trying to block ships carrying weapons bound for Israel, like all these things, man. Keep it going. All right, so now let's uh, go ahead and jump into our interview. Here is Abby Martin. Welcome to uh, the returning champion, I guess you can say, Abby Martin. <laughs> We've had you on previously. You remember when we, uh, and we should actually start on this as well. Uh, so Abby did a great documentary, and I think it was released in 2019, Gaza Fights for Freedom. And so you probably have more experience uh, like on the ground in Gaza and in Israel too, than, than a lot of people watching this. So just tell everybody, like, what was it like being in Gaza, being in Israel? I wonder if you have, do you have an experience in the West Bank too? Have you been to the West Bank? Yeah, well, actually I was banned from getting into Gaza. So I had to work Jesus. around the blockade with the whole team of journalists. I feel like I have been there because of how much I've seen, but, um, but yeah, I was in the West Bank for a month in 2016 subsequently was banned from entering Gaza. I was called an Iranian agent. I thought I was a Russian agent. So that was like very oh, new to me from the Israeli government <laughs> or <laughs> Venezuelan agent. I was like, oh, where's this coming from? But, uh, you know, and that, and I think that's like part of the propaganda control is and the control of the narrative is they simply don't allow um, a lot of people on the ground, especially Israeli or, or Jewish journalists. Um, and it's all kind of within that that idea that it's very dangerous for you to go. Like even when you're entering the West Bank, there's huge red signs. It's like, do not enter, enter at your own risk. Like you could die. And it's like, wow, this is very strong projection coming from the Israeli government because I felt nothing but like gracious hospi- hospitality from all Palestinians. But entering into Jerusalem, um, for just a couple hours, the visceral racism uh, that I encountered and es- essentially just genocidal aspirations from Jewish Israelis was quite shocking and quite stark of a difference. Could you talk a little bit about um, the the Great March of Return, which you documented in Gaza Fights for Freedom and the reaction of the Israeli government and how that perhaps shaped some of the mentality of um, Palestinians living in Gaza? Yeah, I think, you know, just to give some context to Gaza, because a lot of the corporate media frames what's going on as this kind of ancient eternal conflict over religion and frames Gaza as essentially a sovereign area run by Hamas, which is the government that they elected in 2007 and has been reigning over the Gaza Strip ever since. When you look at the West Bank, it's under control of the Palestinian Authority, which is a different political party, Fatah, and it is under military occupation, essentially like martial law. You can't be a member of a political party. You can't have weapons. You can't even hold a Palestinian flag. All of that is deemed illegal. So it's a completely different kind of totalitarian control. And Israel doesn't really like to talk about that. They just kind of like to create this eternal boogeyman of Hamas. And, um, you know, before the Great March of Return sparked off in 2017, already the UN was saying in a couple of years, Gaza is going to be uninhabitable because of lack of potable water, um, you know, all of these different things that were becoming more and more apparent was going to make it rendered completely uninhabitable. And and so all of these things culminated with especially just the increasing amount of brutality and bombardment every couple of years in this caged population 
where 2.3 million people are essentially caged in an open warehouse where 75% are refugees and half are children. And um, all of this was becoming completely untenable. And so over the course of a, a couple months, um, uh, Palestinians got together of all political stripes and they decided, why don't we engage in a mass resistance, civil disobedience that's completely peaceful. Um, and that's what they did, led by a, a man named Ahmed Abu Artema. He's an incredible poet. And he said, why don't we just have this symbolic action to kind of draw attention to our plight as refugees and stage tents on the border, this artificial border fence that's preventing us from getting to our ancestral lands. And what happened was absolutely barbaric. Israeli snipers perched on top of hill hills around this artificial border fence in what traditionally is a no-go zone like they do shoot and kill palestinians who kind of veer too close to this zone regularly but palestinians thought this is a peaceful march what could they possibly do if ten thousand of us came and just kind of chanted and marched and held these flags and they mowed down 62 people um with sniper rifles and and killed 62 people in one day and that was just one friday over the course of several months, they killed over 200 Palestinians with sniper fire. And this was, again, putting Palestinians in the scope of their sniper rifles and pulling the trigger. And this is medics, journalists, children, disabled people. Tens of thousands of people were rendered disabled, weren't able to go get help and medical treatment. And, and I think what's amazing about this instance is it really is a just the most egregious example of what happens to Palestinians no matter what, because they engaged in mass nonviolent resistance and they were mowed down like animals. And so when you hear today, like, where's the Palestinian Gandhi? Why don't they, why don't they practice nonviolent resistance? It's like they they do. There's a rich, vibrant history of nonviolent resistance in the Palestinian movement. And it doesn't matter either way. They're treated like animals, they're called animals, and they're shot down like dogs. And I, I just want to finish this rant really quickly by by bringing it back to today, you guys, because every single person involved in that documentary has been impacted. And I'm going to try not to cry because it, it feels like my brothers, when I'm talking about what has happened to them, Ahmed Artema, his home was targeted and his son was murdered and his 10-year-old boy is gone. And he is now in the hospital with second degree burns, him and his other two surviving children, five other family members were massacred in the home. And my other two friends, journalists who worked on the film, rendered homeless. Two of their brothers have died. And every day I just check in hoping that they're alive. And they're just aimlessly trying to find shelter day to day. The water's run out a long time ago. And it's just horror after horror. It's unfathomable what is happening right now. It's really important for you to get out these stories because oftentimes with a lot of people, when you bring up numbers, it's just, it's very abstract. It's not like it doesn't hit home. And so for you to speak out about, look, I know these people, they're on the ground. People are dying. People have lost the, you know, their apartment building was bombed. Literally over 50% of Gaza is now totally uninhabitable. It's been destroyed by Israeli bombardment. For you to bring it home for people, it makes it so that it's no longer just a number. 
Because one of the things I've been doing on my show, and I know you have too, Crystal, on your show, is that when I'm doing my long segments breaking down all of the updates, I usually start with the numbers coming out of the Euromed Monitor, the human rights group that they, they're on the ground. And, you know, it's, now it's over 16,000 killed, uh, over 13,000 of them are civilians, over 6,000 children are now killed. And you bring those up, and it almost, it almost doesn't feel real, because the numbers are so large that it's like, is, is this really happening? But, you know, you're describing, yeah, and I know some of these people, and I know what's going on. And I just want to um, underscore one of the points that you made there, because you hear this argument all the time from people who are defending the Israeli government. I've heard it before, where they say, look, if Israelis put down their guns, they'd be killed. If Palestinians put down their guns, they'd have a state. This is what you hear. And like you said, oh, where's the Palestinian MLK or Gandhi? Uh, if, if they were peaceful, they'd already have their freedom. This is something you hear all the time. But to your point, there have been many Palestinian MLKs. There have been many Palestinian Gandhis, and they're either dead or locked up as political prisoners. And so what do you do when you're in that situation? If you react violently, you're immediately called a terrorist. If you act, if you react uh, with peaceful, nonviolent resistance, you're shot or locked up. And it's just an absolute no-win situation. And so uh, what I'm do you think like what we're witnessing now is sort of waking up a younger generation? Because I've seen this is more direction than uh, direct action than I've seen in a long, long time where you have people who are blocking ships that have weapons that are bound for Israel on board. You have people who are, you know, protesting a Joe Biden speech when he was talking to the UAW. You have people who are uh, confronting Elizabeth Warren in public. You have people who are blocking the entrance to the DNC, demanding a ceasefire. I haven't seen, you know, the pro-Palestine march was bigger than the the pro-Israel march where you had psychos like John Hagee uh, mixed in with Democratic politicians and Republican politicians. Is this something that you think is like this generation's, like what the Iraq war was for us, where that sort of woke us up like, holy shit, are we witnessing the same kind of uh, awaken among the younger generation on this issue? 100%. It's actually incredibly hopeful and inspiring to see that gap, that generational gap of, you know, believability of the corporate media, um, distrust in our political establishment. And then, of course, I think all of those things come together alongside the advent of social media. Um, and, and it's reflected in polling. I mean, you know, a lot of young people are completely horrified. We see them leading the charge here, Gen Z and millennials. And it's incredible to see direct action, tens of millions of people. And this is a global movement. This is a global anti-war movement that we have not seen the likes of since the Iraq war. It's absolutely phenomenal. And every time I ask my friends in Gaza, what can we do? What can we do? He just says, please, they just say, please keep doing this. This is incredibly powerful. And just to, to go out there and do actions of solidarity, I think means a lot even though political establishment is unmovable on this issue. And, and when you see like just how unmovable it is, it's really shocking, you guys. I mean, 80% of Democratic voters across all ages want a ceasefire. 8% of Democratic representatives do. And then when you look at Republicans, it's 56% of Republicans want a ceasefire. Zero, zero percent of political representatives in the Republican Party do. And so I think it's just like all issues, we know that the ruling class does not represent actually what this country cares about. But when you see tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in the streets of this country, that's not a little thing. Like it takes a lot, right? Especially when the corporate media is pushing one narrative, a bipartisan consensus on this issue. 
and they're pushing so much propaganda, very one-sided. And so it takes a lot to unlearn what we've been told our whole lives, seek the truth. And with the advent of social media, seeing Palestinians for the first time essentially dictate their own narratives, their own reality, they're live streaming this genocide. They're saying, look, you know, and that that's what's so traumatizing too, is like, they have to go out there and do press conference conferences with body bags stacked mm-hmm. around them because we are being told and gaslit by our media and political representatives that we can't trust the death toll, right? They have to show us the dead kids and say, look, these are not toys. This isn't Hollywood. Like this is real suffering. This is real suffering. And it's just so, it's so horrifying that they have to do that. But Kyle, you said something really important, which is, you know, the nonviolent resistance and and how that that is apparent. And when you look at the West Bank, if this is really just about Hamas and eliminating terrorism, why are they depopulating the West Bank? Why is it that right. ethnic cleansing that West Bank has ramped up, ratcheted up to levels that we have not seen in a long, decades? I mean, right now, 15 villages over the last couple of weeks have already been completely depopulated at the barrel of a gun. And when Israeli officials are sitting there on TV telling us this is the second Nakba, believe them. When they say this is what we're doing, believe them. Yeah. They're openly talking about committing genocide, ethnic cleansing, and committing a Nakba. And this is what happened during the Nakba in 1948. They depopulated, raised 500 villages down to the ground, killed people, randomly terrorized villages, and then the rest of the people fleed because they were just like, this is horrifying. We're going to die if we stay here. And, and that's the tactic that we're seeing today. And they cloak it. This is the thing that's been galling to me is they'll cloak it in humanitarian sounding language. So now the term of art is, well, we want to set up a humanitarian corridor in, in Egypt and in, through the Rafah border. And like, you could see how somebody who's like not, you know, uh, politically astute, maybe they, they don't follow these things closely. They come across a passage like that and they say, oh, see, they want to save their lives and give them a humanitarian corridor. And it's like, they just used fancy terminology to dress up ethnic cleansing. Like they kicked them off of their land in North Gaza, made them go to South Gaza. Now they're trying to set up a tent desert, uh, a tent city in the in the Sinai, and they're trying to bribe Sisi to allow that to happen. So he aids in the ethnic cleansing. And the entire time it's being framed as like like the bombing is some sort of law of nature that's not changeable. Right. But like we're being so kind by doing a humanitarian corridor. Now, the, did you see this new term? The um, voluntary emigration. Right. They want them to do voluntary emigration, you know, to all these different places around the world because it's the humanitarian. They literally say because it's the humanitarian thing. And it's like you're just describing ethnic cleansing. Yeah. Like that's what this is. And Abby, that's part of what I've been trying to wrap my head around is even as, you know, we continue to call for a ceasefire and are heartened to see um, growing protests in favor of a ceasefire and the American people, you know, calling for a ceasefire, et cetera. I'm also looking and and thinking about trying to wrap my head around what's already been done here. I mean, Mm -hmm. you already have Haaretz published an op-ed about Gaza City is already uninhabitable. Like, it's done. People who have been displaced from there, there's nowhere for them to go back to, right? Their homes are gone. You already have millions of people at this point who have been forcibly displaced. So that's what I'm trying to wrap my head around is like, even if everything stopped right now, and even if the U.S. was like, okay, we are not doing ethnic cleansing and forcing people into the desert in Egypt, and we're going to have some sort of a peacekeeping force come in to run Gaza, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, what is the reality of what's already happened here? 
Yeah, I mean, the UN just came out with a report about a week ago where they said the the equivalent of the damage, the destruction by bombing in Syria, and we know that that was relentless and, you know, I mean, total destruction of entire neighborhoods in the fight against ISIS, um, raised to the ground, I mean, so many civilians killed in single airstrikes. That amount of damage that it took four years in Syria was done in four weeks in Gaza. And the report also covered that it's the equivalent of dropping two nuclear bombs. That is the sheer amount of bombing destruction that we have seen take place. We know that Gaza is one of the most densely populated places in the world. When we talk about 50 plus, probably much more now, entire generations of Palestinian families wiped off the map. That is what we're talking about because Palestinians in Gaza can't build out. They don't allow a lot of construction materials in. And so that's why you see homes with babies and 100-year-old Palestinians all living in the same home because they all live together. And that's why, you know, 30 people are dying at a time. Their entire lineage is completely extinguished. And so what you're talking about right now is the entire north of the Strip, which is essentially half of it, is completely demolished. Um, there's nothing left. And and they say, oh, it's humanitarian because we, we drop leaflets and issue phone calls telling everyone to flee. And what those leaflets said was that if you remain in the North, you are considered a terrorist. And so you should flee, right? Well, first of all, there's nowhere to go because like you said, even CC is saying we're not going to and they shouldn't have to, like they shouldn't have to let in 2.3 million people. That's crazy. And we shouldn't have to sit back and be like, oh, well, at least they're telling them that they have an option to leave. Like they're not just bombing everyone and killing 2.3 million people as if that's something that we should be happy about. Um, and yeah, I mean, to tell everyone to flee to the South and then bomb aid convoys and bomb people fleeing. They bomb trucks of children and and people fleeing in the South. And a lot of people that I know have stayed in the North, including my friend and colleague, the videographer for the Great March of Return. He said, my parents will not leave. They are too prideful. They are staying put because their, their mentality is we would rather die in our homes wow. than just die out living under a gas station waiting to be bombed in the street. We, we just want to die where we are comfortable, where we've lived our whole lives. And I think that is the mentality. If you look at footage, there's tons of people that still reside in the North because there's simply nowhere for them to go. Abby, I wonder if you could also speak to um, what you've seen in terms of the Israeli public and their attitude. I mean, the the rightward shift of the Israeli government has been very well tracked. And, um, you know, some of the members of Netanyahu's uh, cabinet and its coalition partners are, you know, like, outright fascist. I don't even think they'd really deny the terms. Some of them admit it, have even before this used overtly genocidal rhetoric. But also I came across a stat that Israel is one of the only developed countries where young people are actually more right-wing, extreme, and reactionary than older Israelis. And so I'd love for you to speak to a little bit of that because I know that you've done a lot of work on the ground in Israel as well, tracking public opinion. Yeah, I mean, it's true. Like there, the kibbutzes in the origin, I mean, obviously, anytime you're going to plop a, an artificial country on top of one that's that has indigenous inhabitants and the entire premise of Israel and foundation of Israel is ethnic cleansing, that's how you maintain an artificial Jewish majority. Obviously, there's always going to be problems and there was ever since the initiation of the first settlers there. But there was kind of this more socialist enclave of the kibbutzes and a lot of like, 
you know, like Bernie, I think even went there and like lived in a kibbutz or something. Like there was like this, uh, it, it definitely was not completely overtly fascist, like it has become. And I think a lot of Israelis, like the thing is, a lot of Israelis are dual nationals. A lot of people who move to Israel have dual citizenship because they're coming and emigrating from all over the world. That's the whole point about the right to return law. Um, so I think a lot of Israelis who grow up and are disgusted with how racist society has become leave. It would be quite difficult to especially be an anti-Zionist. I mean, that's a whole nother level. If you're straight up anti-Zionist, it's like you probably could not live in that situation. But even if you're just super progressive and on the left and are think the occupation is very wrong, um, it would be really difficult to live in that society. And all of the, the sentiment that I experienced on the ground doing random man on the streets is reflected in polling. You just see polling, let's say, the shoot to kill orders of people who are wandering too close to the fence in Gaza. 97% agreed with that. And even though it was proven time and again that it was people who were protected categories at the Geneva Conventions were being targeted and killed. It didn't matter. Um, you know, Stair wrote one of the areas that Hamas invaded on October 7th. They have a notorious Stair wrote cinema where they go to the hilltop and watch Gaza be bombed. And it's like a movie night. I mean, they go and drink beer and eat popcorn and watch Gaza be, you know, Gazans be killed. Um, but the polling, I think, reflects the larger sentiment of Israeli society, which is very fascistic. And everyone agrees with the occupation. I mean, you kind of have to, because that's, if you're going to lift the occupation, then obviously you're going to have a problem with the artificial majority of uh, Jewish citizens. So, yeah, I mean, I think the, the government is certainly reflective of society at large. Um, the fact that our liberal establishment continues to try to make it be about Netanyahu's far right government. And that's who's committing these crimes. And that's who's really to blame for all the problems in Israeli society. It's just a smokescreen. They don't want to tell us the truth because it really hinges on American opinion at this point. That's why you have all these Israeli ministers and stuff like speaking English to us. They're not out there speaking Hebrew. They're out there on American TV telling American audiences how this can all be palatable to us, because that's the last line of defense as Americans. Israelis know exactly what's going on. Like, for example, when Biden was out there questioning the Hamas-run health ministry numbers, Israeli TV was proudly declaring the exact same count of people dead and called them terrorists and said, this is how many terrorists we've killed. And we know half our children. So um, that's being proudly proclaimed on Israeli media. And all of the, I mean, every single Israeli prime minister, everyone in the cabinet, you just had Ben Gavir, which is the security minister out there in the West Bank in an assembly line fashion, handing out assault rifles to armed extremist settlers. I mean, this is this is the reality going on there. Um, and Israelis know exactly what's going on. They are openly genocidal and they are proudly genocidal. Like, just look at the interviews I did. It was not cherry picking. That's the truth. When you have many people on camera within two hours of wandering around a place and they are willing to look on camera and tell you carpet bomb kill them expel them all what are they willing to say off camera and then mm. you go to palestinians in the west bank and the vast majority and, and I, I will actually say all of them said we just want to live in peace why do they have to come live on top of my village I'm fine with them being here. There's plenty of room, but why do they have to come and live right on top of me 
and assault me and and terrorize me. And and that really, you know, I, I even saw Zogby say like, yeah, we did a poll in Israel and Palestine and everyone who said they want a one state solution, the Israelis meant without Palestinians and the Palestinians said, we just want equal rights. And I think that really sums up the situation. You made a good point there, which I've been thinking about a lot, which is the honesty of the way that the Israeli government proclaims what they're doing versus the way the U.S. has to put this veneer of human rights and international law over it. When Netanyahu gave that speech and he cited the Bible and mentioned Amalek, um, and then you go read the passage of Amalek and it talks about killing all of them, including you know women and children. When you have the Israeli official who talked about they're, these are human animals and we're going to treat them as such. You have multiple Israeli politicians saying, hey, we're floating the idea of nuking them. Uh, and then you compare that to, like you said, Biden, and he has to do this weird tap dance where he's like, I know, I mean, some civilians are getting killed, but I mean, it's not it's not the numbers that are being released from the Gaza Health Ministry. We, we don't necessarily believe those numbers. And then there's this insistence of like, Israel, we're on your side, but you need to bomb humanitarianly. And it's like, well, they're not doing that. Use so, smaller bombs. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, I saw that one too. You're right. And so I, that that dichotomy is wild to me because like you said, it's like they have to try to appease the U.S. government and the U.S. Uh, audience because it's like it's our tax money that shores them up and our support and our weapons that shore them up and, and allows it. Um, do you see... There's this interesting uh, there's in interesting theory that I'm curious your thoughts on. It looks like uh, what's happening, particularly in the West Bank, too, is that you have these illegal Israeli settlers. And there's a great interview in the New York Times re or New Yorker recently yeah. where they talked to a settler and the settlers let it all hang out and was just like basically like we have a divine holy right to not only uh, this land in the West Bank, but also, you know, all the way Israel to the proper Nile, back to the to the Bible days. So yeah. it's like almost all of Syria and then parts of Egypt and Lebanon and Jordan. Like it, so th they were very straightforward about being like basically re religious fanatics. And the goal of the Israeli government is like, we're going to sit back, let the illegal settlers do their thing, take more and more territory. And then that eventually gives us the pretext to jump in and say, well, I mean, look, we're already there. So I guess what are we going to do we, with this? We're going to annex the land and make it part of Israel. Is that what you see as the strategy unfolding in the West Bank? 100%. And that and and like you were saying, Crystal, too, is like the amount of time that we've seen this operation already unfold. It's like, what are we can't go back to how it was like, where can people go? And when you see the West Bank being depopulated very quickly and under the cover of kind of darkness, because all eyes are on Gaza, this is exactly the strategy. This is exactly the plan. And you see Israeli commanders of the army like gleeful, like so happy about them fulfilling this larger idea. Um, to carry out their operation. I mean, despite having experienced this national tragedy that was their 9-11, they seem pretty happy about taking back their ancestral lands on the beaches in Gaza. That's a lot of beachfront property. And the West Bank ramping up the escalation. I mean, this is like piecemeal over the course of many, many years and decades that they take more and more. It, it's hard to depopulate an entire village, right? You have international observers getting in the way. You have 
news agencies slowing things down, you know, at a time of relative calm in that area, it's not easy to, to completely depopulate a village. Um, but that's exactly what they're doing very rapidly. And it's happening with basically no outcry because we're so focused on the atrocities and horror unfolding in Gaza. And so I think that that was very deliberate. And that's why you saw like people like Ben Gavir handing out all those weapons. It's like, okay, now's the time. Go, go, go. Let's get this done. And then you can sit back and be like, well, we can't go back. We can't retreat. Um, so yeah, once you depopulate those villages, once illegal settlers move in, well, it's not like you can kick them out, right? Even though it's easy to kick out Palestinian families, but who's going to be there to say, no, you need to leave and, and give your home back to the Palestinians. What's done is done. And that's how they see it. And and meanwhile, Americans are just twiddling their thumbs, uh, you know, arresting people, Jewish-led actions. This is another huge facet of this that is completely demolishing the Israeli narrative, is that so many of these direct actions that we're seeing in this country are Jewish-led. And that's why you see uh, Israeli officials, they're only, like, I think it was Avi Mayer, if I, and forgive me if I'm mistaken on that, the editor-in-chief of Jerusalem Post, but I, I'm pretty sure it was him. And if it wasn't, it was someone in the Israeli government who said, denounce your Judaism. You guys are no longer Jews if you do not agree with what we are doing and with the Zionist project. That's crazy. I mean, that that's, that's anti-Semitic, right? Um, and so it's just... It's so insulting to our intelligence to be told to conflate Judaism with what is happening in Israel when almost all of the people who are on the front lines right now are American Jews. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your impression of how Palestinians in the West Bank and Palestinians in Gaza think about the Palestinian Authority and how they think about Hamas. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, it's it's hard to speak on behalf of Palestinians. And, and that's like the Hamas thing is hard because it's like I'm I, I don't know if I'm in the position that I can critique what Palestinians have chosen as what is best to represent them, especially in Gaza. And Hamas was, you know, doing a lot of armed resistance and Palestinians felt like that was the best representation at the time to fight back against their colonizers. In the West Bank, I do know that Pretty much everyone hates the, hates the PA because the PA is it's kind of like this. It's a way to kind of pretend like Palestinians have authority of their own lives and sovereignty over their own lives, and really, it's just complete and utter collaborator with the Israeli occupier and occupation. And so it's it's almost like an obstruction. It's like kind of obfuscates the real stark reality of it, which is everything in Palestinians' lives are dictated by the Israeli occupation and Israeli control. But because they have this Palestinian guy, so-called running the Palestinian authority and pretending like they manage the affairs of their lives, it's kind of difficult for like foreigners who maybe aren't as well versed in the situation to be like, well, Palestinians control the West Bank, right? Without really understanding it's totally insane. Like you can't even get water and then Israeli tanks will go around and shoot the skunk spray in the water. And then your entire months of water supply is gone. Like the PA does nothing about that because they can't stand up to the people who really control them, which is the Israeli military occupation. And that's completely unanimous. I didn't meet one Palestinian who was like, actually, I really like, I really, really like these guys. They're doing a lot for us. Like no one thinks that everyone hates them. And they just think it's a smokescreen for um, for Western audiences, especially <laughs> like just to not understand who's really in control. 
So can you, can you speak a little bit more to that just to get into the, some of the specifics? Like if you have um, uh, illegal settlers coming in and using violence or intimidation to try to push Palestinians off of their land in the West Bank, like what are the PA forces doing? Are they present at all? Do they just let the settlers do their thing? Is there any sort of protection for um, Palestinians in the West Bank? Essentially, no. I mean, the West Bank is divided up into three territories, uh, area A, B, and C. And so an, another problem is when you're looking at like the partition map, you know, like the map that I think MSNBC had to apologize for showing, like a very, like an obvious reality of the shrinking land that we're told should be the second state. It's completely impossible because the land has been so atomized with settlements over the last couple of decades that there is no way to put all that land together that's already been overtaken by settlers into a state. Like there's so many military checkpoints that go between those, but there's only one area of the area A, B, and C that is governed by the Palestinian Authority. And the other two are like a mishmash of Israeli security control and then just straight up illegal settlements um, that is fully under Israeli military control. So when you're looking at like all of the crazy footage of just settlers coming in, they set up like an outpost on top of a village and then they're immediately supplied like water and electrical lines and then military support by the Israeli military that will come and, and pump them up. Um, and that that's mostly an area B and C. But that's happening rapidly. And no, there is no protection for Palestinians at all. Their homes are firebombed. They're regularly assaulted and terrorized. And there is nothing that they can do because they can't have weapons. And so every Palestinian, like I remember I was in a car driving with a, a bunch of Palestinian guys, like, and I had a nail file in my purse. And they were just like, we went through a checkpoint and they were like, by the way, if they find anything on you that can be construed as a weapon. And I was like, well, I have this. They're like, we could go to jail again. Because they had all just been arbitrarily put through jail with no trial. It was just like, it's just crazy. Everyone in that system goes through jail, sits, languishes for year, months or years with no charges. And then when they're finally let out, they could just be arbitrarily thrown back in because you find something that can be construed as a weapon. Meanwhile, settlers can be armed with assault weapons, like going wow. and terrorizing you, lighting fires on your olive trees. And these are your life. This is your livelihood. And I sit back and think if this is your ancestral lands, right? That's the argument uh, for settlers too, because it's all about biblical prophecy. If this is your ancestral lands and you think this is your divine right, why do you want to burn it down? Why do you want to raise Gaza to the ground? Like, don't you want to cherish this land and cultivate the crops and like nourish these olive trees? Like you're just raising everything and burning it to hell. So, um, Crystal, what, to respond to your question there, I had read something that said, and this I thought this was really interesting, that Palestinians in Gaza are actually more pro-Palestinian authority and Palestinians uh, in the West Bank are actually more sympathetic to Hamas. So it's almost like the devil, they're you know. both like, well, they're like, <laughs> yeah, I know what's happening here and it's not okay. So I want <laughs> what the other one has, which is like, but it's all like you say, Abby, it's all because of the occupation, right? Like these are there, it's such brutal right. conditions that like, you know, no, you're not going to be supportive of any leadership because it's like, th this is not working. None of this is working. Um, but I wanted to ask you about this because I thought this was really interesting and indicative of almost how 
I don't know, I guess naive is the right word when talking about uh, Biden. I mean, he's clearly going, he's complicit. He's going along and arming the genocide and all that, like all that's true. But I also just think he's incredibly naive as well as other people in his administration. Because I remember the U.S. brought up that like, oh, a, a good solution will have the uh, Palestinian Authority uh, control Gaza. And Israel immediately was like, no, like, we'll we'll go ahead and for an indefinite amount of time, we'll like control the security situation in Gaza, which is just code word for we're going to annex it. uh, We're going to occupy it. And obviously they're trying to not just take North Gaza. They also want to take South Gaza by expelling Palestinians into the Sinai Desert, etc. Do you agree with me that when I look at like the U.S. reaction, it's almost like, oh, you really don't know the level of, like, extremism and fascism that you're dealing with, with the Israeli government, that they thought, oh, if I say maybe the Palestinian Authority will run Gaza, that they'll be like, yes, that's a good idea. It's like, no, they want to ethnically cleanse Palestine. And it seems like the U.S. government, even though they're facilitating it, they don't really know that they're dealing with absolute psychotic extremists. Totally. I mean, to your first point, a lot of Palestinians in Gaza that I know said, yeah, like a lot of people here don't agree with Hamas. I mean, Hamas is the government. And so when you look at like when you just cartoonishly label Hamas and Hezbollah terrorist organizations without understanding that they have political representation and that every building that is infrastructurally has to do with government services is technically a Hamas run building and therefore, you know, apparently worthy of being bombed. It's totally outrageous considering how this election was a one-time election and half of the people living there weren't even a lot, like children couldn't vote for Hamas, you know? I mean, so when you hear Israeli officials constantly be like, no innocent civilians, because these people are eventually going to grow up to be terrorists. It's like, I thought this whole dilemma about would you kill baby Hitler was like such a crazy dilemma because you couldn't kill a baby. But now apparently this is like the logic that's sound about just massacring thousands of children. And I could, and going off on this tangent, I completely missed what your, the actual question was, Kyle. Sorry. Oh, I was just talking about, um, <laughs> ha, do you agree that the U.S., even though they're oh, complicit, right. there's also extreme naivete, naivete right, because right. They're, they don't realize that like, like right. you thought Israel was really going to say, sure, let's have the Palestinian yeah. Authority look after <laughs> Gaza. It's like, no, they're yeah, like yeah, yeah. ethnic cleansing. Come on, let's go. Yeah, they're just like, what are you talking about? Let's we're we're, this is way too late. Like, let's get all these people out of here. Because, yeah, it's all about the second Nakba. Um, it's all about them taking back the land, not just controlling Palestinians the way that they want to. And and again, like, they wanted Hamas to win. This was revealed in WikiLeaks cables, like, right after the election happened. Israel was uh, revealed to encouraging this. I mean, some people say that they helped make it happen in other ways. Um, but that that is exactly what they wanted to do, because then they could call every ta- everyone in Gaza, a legitimate target. When I look at the Biden administration, I think just yesterday, Joe Biden repeated the fact that babies were beheaded and women were raped and this and that. I mean, he is out there saying long debunked propaganda still to kind of justify these ongoing atrocities, you guys. I I don't know if it's naivete or senility. I I don't know how you can explain that. Probably both. Because he has been coached, I'm sure, by the by very smart people who are like, look, don't say this, do it's crazy that he that he's getting up there and repeating this stuff, you guys. I don't know what the hell is going on. I think that he really needs to step down because there is I don't even really want to talk about making this into an election issue, but I know that he has royally fucked up. 
Um, and if he doesn't step down now and let someone else run, I think the Democratic Party is completely screwed. Yeah. And it, that's wild, especially because Trump has 91 criminal charges. But it's like yeah. you're messing up so bad that like that he's the he's the favorite in all the polls. Now, Trump's the favorite. Yeah, that's right. right. Because because of this is the biggest thing. Young people are fleeing Arab Americans and Muslim Americans. Very key, crucial voting demographic in swing states fleeing, fleeing, fleeing. Um, this is I the mean, red line. This is their red line. I yeah. mean, right. so many Muslims are just like, I, I'm I'm done. Can't. Yeah. yeah, we talked we talked to Ryan Grimm about a, a high level donor. Um, to drops uh, next week, by Biden. the way, guys. Yeah, that'll come out next week. But uh, a high level donor to Biden um, said, no, I, I'm, I can't. I'm out. Genocide is where I get off the bus was exactly the quote from Ryan. And, um, you know, that's someone who's invested a lot of money in this administration. Your average young person, your average Arab American or your average Muslim American who is looking at this and not just I mean, the, the position and the aiding and abetting is, you know, the, the bulk of the problem, but also the belligerent attitude and the totally contemptful smearing of young people and of anyone who dissents on this issue is um, is really something. Oh, my God. I mean, the fact that in response to this unprecedented wave of protests, they're trying to further criminalize pro-Palestine activism on yeah. college campuses and, and threaten students with their livelihoods saying you will be doxxed you're if you're a law student you won't be able to get a career it is unbelievable what they are doing and we know already the wave of bds anti-bds legislation that was kind of preemptively put in place because they knew that the tide was turning and they knew eventually what was going to happen and so to see our legislators across the aisle go and totally subvert our constitution by putting in place laws that demand you pledge loyalty to a foreign country in order to work in certain states is just unbelievable. And now they're just taking this further by trying to uh, put a nationwide chilling effect on students and activists saying your life will be ruined. And Abby, you, you, you actually won a court case on a similar related issue, correct? Was, wasn't it you who were like, you were going to speak at some college and then you were blocked because of your pro-Palestine activism and then you guys had to sue and you ended up winning in court? Well, this is crazy. So this is why I think it's going to go to the Supreme Court. And when it does, I don't have high hopes for it because mm -hmm. there's been different um, rulings across the country. A couple states have seen this law be um, challenged and including myself, I was supposed to speak at uh, Georgia Southern University, and I was given the BDS, the anti-BDS pledge to sign. I said I couldn't sign it. Long story short is I took uh, I, I took the law to court, um, sued the state of Georgia. I, I At first, the judge ruled on my behalf. And then an Israeli consulate, this is amazing, an Israeli consulate official, as we're all bemoaning about Russia controlling our legislative system and, you know, Russia gate and all this stuff, an Israeli consulate official came to the Georgian legislature and argued that they should up the cap because the, the BDS laws across the country is mostly if you make a $1,000 contract, then you have to sign this pledge. So basically what they did is argued that, I, that they should change the amount that you make to essentially nullify my case. Mm. And so the case was nullified because they just upped the amount to $100,000. And so it was kind of like a way for them to declare victory, even though the fundamental basis was still ruled in my favor. Like it doesn't, you can't put a cap on free speech. And so the ruling still stands like symbolically, but technically they didn't lose. 
Wow. That is wild. I didn't <laughs> know that part of the story. That's astonishing. I did not know that. I remember covering when you won. I didn't know yeah. that there was a little I behind know. the scenes like switcheroo in order to technically let these laws hang on. And by the way, I, correct me if I'm wrong, Abby, but isn't it like, I think it's 27 or 29 of the, yeah. the states have anti-BDS laws on the books. More than half of the states have it. So you can yeah. say I want to boycott the United States of America in America. Totally fine. But you say I want to boycott Israel. Not allowed. Not allowed. What is your I would love for you, Abby, to talk to tackle this uh, talking point that I hear all the time of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There might be some problems with what Israel's doing here. But why do you care so much about Israel when, you know, there are terrible things happening in Yemen and there are terrible things happening in other places? And, you know, you're not you're not nearly as emotionally invested in those issues. And usually the implication, if not explicit statement, is that it must be because you just hate Jewish people and you're anti-Semitic. Right. I mean, well, the most obvious response is that my government is doing these, doing this. I mean, essentially, like you just had Biden sending 2,000 more hellfire missiles. I love that word. It's just crazy that this is what we're doing. Um, and this wouldn't be happening without the sponsorship and backing of our government. Our government is responsible for subjugating tens of millions of people around the world. That is why my entire body of work and my entire life's work is dedicated to dismantling the empire um, and to rein in imperialism around the world because of the damage and destruction and death it causes. So Israel is our most important partner in the Middle East. And I don't know if you guys saw this. This this really explains it all. I've never seen anyone lay this out so explicitly as a member of the ruling class. RFK Jr. was just talking to someone about the utility of Israel for the U.S. empire. And it was just mind-boggling because I was like, oh, well, finally someone just said it, um, that it's our colonial outpost, that it's our eyes and ears in the Middle East. And if we didn't have Israel to secure that stronghold, then Russia and China would get the oil. And you even saw Joe Biden decades ago talking about this. Um, he was just like, if Israel didn't exist, we would have to create Israel to serve our interests. Lays it out right there. So, I mean, and I do care about Yemen and I do care about all these countries that is that horrors are being inflicted upon the population by our government. It's just that when you look at what's going on in Palestine, it is the most egregious example of modern day colonialism happening before our eyes live streamed. And so I think, you know, when we have, um, like when you see Democrats doing land recognition and all this stuff, it's like, yeah, whores were inflicted, genocide took place in this country. And we should never, we should never stop talking about that. This is happening literally in front of our eyes right now in high definition. Like everyone can see the ethnic cleansing, everyone can see the colonization at the barrel of a gun and it is paid for by our tax dollars and armed with our government. And I, I do think it's an unprecedented situation. I really do, because I have never heard in my life of putting, throwing millions of people in a caged area and then indiscriminately bombing them, carpet bombing a caged area where people cannot flee. And I think Gaza is a very crazy, unprecedented thing. So it is, you know, people like to say, oh, why do you care about this? But you don't care about that. It's like, because actually I do care about all those things, but also this is fucking crazy, man. Like when you look at what Gaza is, that's nuts. That's an unprecedented situation and a completely created humanitarian catastrophe. And it's shocking 
2.3 million people caged like animals, deprived of water and electricity and mobility, all basic fundamental human rights. And then you have the audacity to think and the arrogance to think that those people will remain caged forever. Um, that's not how the world works. So, um, like, why focus on Israel? The thing, whenever people claim that, I think somebody brought it up to Ilhan was like, why don't you focus like Saudi Arabia? Should they be boycotted? And she was like, yes. <laughs> it's like, I know, like, that's I always what happens it's like the oh. idea that like people like us who criticize israel like kyle you're not against saudi arabia like, no. it's like have you checked the archives i've yeah. been so critical of saudi arabia i'm surprised they haven't sent a hitman on me jesus christ um abby i wondered if you could talk a little bit about uh what you've experienced with regard to israeli government propaganda and this comes in the context of the um storming of al-shifa hospital and listen Maybe they're going to produce some more evidence, but they built this thing up like this was Hamas Grand Central, like there were hostages that were being held there. They also John Kirby, our own spokesperson, said that, you know, they were likely to um, I can't remember exactly the language he used, but basically in, indicated that Hamas militants were ready for a fight inside the hospital, that there would be firefights. Um, we've seen no evidence of any of that. The best they could produce thus far and we're on day number two of their search is like literally 10 guns and a box of dates. So, um, which they swear they didn't plant that they, they found them there on the scene. So I wonder, um, based on, you know, your reporting, uh, in, about the, the March of return, uh, and other experiences that you've had, what is sort of the pattern of Israeli government propaganda and misdirection and, uh, how people should be assessing claims that come from the Israeli government? Yeah. Don't forget the calendar that they said was oh, a hostage, yeah. uh, <laughs> Right. Shift, shifts that for the terrorists. A, that was and it's amazing. Like, Don't you speak Arabic? Like, I mean, it's it's so low brow, and it's such low grade propaganda that it's insulting. It's like, oh man, you didn't even really try there. But again, they don't have to, because they know that it will be taken, parroted uncritically by the media stenographers across the corporate media across the world. The way the playbook works is that first you uh, deny. Right, like we saw in the Al Arab Baptist Hospital, that you blame it on your enemy. Right, Palestinians are so stupid that they just blow themselves up. Oh, Palestinians are such animals that they use civilians as human shields. They don't care about the sanctity of human life. They throw babies in front of bullets. This narrative completely falls apart. A, when you look at the Great March of Return, which is tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. There were no militants there. Not one Israeli soldier was harmed by anything other than someone throwing a rock. And they still use the human shield narrative across the corporate media, across the justification for killing so many people. They said they were all human shields for militants and for Hamas. Where was Hamas? Where were the militants? And they even said, you know, incredible medic Razan al-Najjar was a human shield. They doctored a footage of her saying, I'm a human shield for the wounded. I throw myself in front of people to to save lives and they doctored that to try to smear her um posthumously and you know the human shield thing if you look at the trope for some reason it's stuck on the palestinians but if you look at actually that racist veil and trope it goes back to world war ii we talked about the japanese using human shields it goes back to the Viet Cong. Viet Cong were using human shields the korean army um iraq Saddam, you look at corporate media back then, it said Saddam's going to use human shields, basically to anticipate the large amount of civilians that are going to die. 
from um, U.S. invasions or bombings or our allies' bombings campaigns. And so it's kind of grotesque when you look at just the history of that propaganda. But so that doesn't stick even when you're looking at Gaza. I mean, the human shield thing, not only does Israel provide no evidence for human shields, um, but also to their own definition, they have made Gaza into what they call human shields. Like they've made it impossible for people to operate normally, right? Everywhere is a target in Gaza because of how densely populated it is. If you apply the same logic to Israel, well, Israel's using human shields as well because Israel command centers are right smack in the middle of dense residential neighborhoods. But is it any doubt that if Hamas bombed an IDF tower in the middle of a residential neighborhood that it would be called a war crime? Of course not. So it's this egregious double standard that is simply not applied to Israeli forces or authorities. Now, when you're looking at the propaganda in general, it's such outrageous propaganda um, that just sticks because they know that people will just reprint IDF press releases. And it's not it's not just unique to Israel. This is what happens with all U.S. adversaries, right? Um, people believe whatever they want to about North Korea, about Iran, Venezuela. It doesn't matter. So Israel is not unique in that sense, but they know what they give to the U.S. media will be printed. And that's why you see the passive voice be used. Palestinians just drop dead, whereas Israelis are killed. Um, and yeah. let's just talk about the all-Arab bombing, because this was so crazy that they said it was an errant missile. So at first, there was international outrage building on the Al-Ari hospital because 500 people died. And that was the largest single attack ever in the history of Israeli aggression. No one has ever died. No, no amount of people that big has ever died in one attack. And that's why there was so much international outrage building. And that's why they immediately were like, no, this isn't us. So then you saw the headlines change. Oh, they're just blaming each other. Who really blew up all those people in the hospital? You saw politicians condemning the explosion, the mystery explosion. Then we saw this mystery tape be put out by alleged militants talking to each other, admitting that they had a command center under the hospital. And then that was proven to be doctored. That audio was fake. That audio recording was fake. I, I looked into this and I saw back in 2010 during that horrible flotilla massacre where commandos jumped on that boat in international waters and massacred nine people, peace activists bringing aid to Gaza. They released a doctored audio recording after that attack that said that the people on the boats, they, they doctored their voices to make it sound like they were saying, go back to Auschwitz as if they were anti-Semites on the boat worthy of execution. And then months later, they had to admit that was fake. Wow. But it's so far gone. The propaganda already sticks. The lies don't catch up. The truth never catches up with the lies. So the beheaded babies, the rap, the rape, the atrocities, the fact that Palestinians are killing themselves, blowing up their own hospitals, it becomes so confusing for people. That it, and then it also kind of creates that idea, oh, it really is a war. And oh, wow, they have the capabilities to blow up a hospital and kill 500 people. Of course they don't. Homemade rockets can never do as much damage as, as was done in that hospital. And so these audio recordings, they released another one to, to justify the Al-Shifa hospital bombing, um, saying we got all these ambulances, bro. Like we have so many ambulances. Again, fake, fake, fake. And we were told for weeks leading up to this, they were bombing hospitals, they were bombing mosques, they were bombing schools, and we were told they have command centers, command centers under all of these places, you guys. They're shooting rockets from these places. The only evidence they could put forward was a CGI rendering of a command bunker <laughs> under the Al-Shifa hospital that really harkened back to the Osama bin Laden cave system, like Rumsfeld unfurling, Dick Cheney unfurling right. these maps yeah, of and the, the cave Saddam systems. Bunker, I was like, yeah. let's see it, dude. Let's see it. 
And then it turns out Israel actually built a command center or a bunker rather under al-Shifa when they occupied Gaza before they were forced out in the early 2000s. And so I was like, okay, well, then they're just going to reveal this bunker and pretend like it was Hamas all the time. And then they did something even crazier, which is they didn't even find anything. Where's the tunnel network? Where's the where's the bunker? Where's the command center? And all the doctors are pleading to us. I mean, I've never seen anything like it in my life. Doctors having to stop what they are doing to save lives, coming out and giving a press conference to the Western world saying, please, please do not bomb this hospital, please. I mean, the fact that we are sitting here justifying bombing hospitals and then the IDF comes in and invades the hospital, sniping people in the ICU ward. And I think that really sitting back and seeing they have no evidence, they obviously planted everything that's there. There was even a laptop that they had to, they took down the tweet and then they re-uploaded the video with the laptop blurred because we saw it was just some soldier's laptop that they pretended was a Hamas operative. They're not even trying. But sitting back and looking, what is the strategy of destroying all these hospitals? It's because those are the last refuges of thousands of people who are sheltering and they want the expulsion. They want everyone to be terrorized and everyone to flee. And that is why they came in and did this big military operation at the hospital. And they essentially admitted as such. I think it was last night. They just said this was kind of a show of force to show that nowhere is safe in Gaza and nothing was really revealed after all of that propaganda. And, you know, and all of these people were either forced to flee and leave the patients to die. And I don't even know the status of those 37 babies that were pulled out of the NICU. The same manufactured lies that we went to the Gulf War over, that's happening right now, actually. I have a, I have that quote, I think that you're referring to, Abby, a senior Israeli official told a Hebrew language news outlet, quote, the entrance to Shifa is first of all, a symbol that there is no place we will not reach. We did not think we would find hostages. Remember, we were all being sold. Oh, they may be keeping hostages there. But we will definitely locate and dismantle Hamas capabilities. So, again, they're very open about what's going on here. You know, damage, not precision, Nakba 2023. And then American politicians and the media pretend like, you know, they don't hear any of that. And like, yeah. if you even say that, how dare you, you so, anti-Semite, that you just literally repeat the things that the Israeli government is announcing that they're doing. So it depends on their audience. When they're trying to talk to the Western audience, that's when they cloak it with the fake humanitarian mm-hmm. stuff. Like yeah. you said, when they release like the weird CGI thing of the hospital. that Just before that, they were like, we would never bomb a hospital. How dare you? Right. And then like the next day, Netanyahu releases like, look at this Hamas bunker underneath the hospital. So obviously we have to bomb it. It's like, are you guys not even like trying it? Are you not keeping track of this? And then uh, to your point, yeah, when everybody was debating over the Al-Ali hospital bombing, like, like, oh, was it a misfired uh, Islamic Jihad rocket and all that? All that, that entire conversation is moot and ancillary mm. because 21 hospitals were bombed and 200 health professionals were killed, doctors, nurses, paramedics. So, like, even if you want to grant them that, which I don't, but even if you want to, you say, okay, what about the other freaking 20 hospitals that were bombed? Also, look, this is one of the more uncomfortable points for people, but facts are facts and numbers are numbers. When you look at the civilian death rate, Hamas killed about 45% innocent civilians, according to the Israeli government's own numbers. They released the names of the people who were killed. First it was 1,400. They revised it out to 1,200. About 45% are civilians. I condemn that 100%. Don't want any civilians killed. The civilian death rate on the Palestinian side is between 74% as the low number, according to the UN. The high number is about 94%, according to Euromed Monitor. 
So, like, what are we talking about here? You guys have a worse civilian death rate than Hamas? And you're trying to show that, like, we are obviously the, the, you know, the moral beacon here. And then on the human shields point, this one really drives me crazy. Because it's like, they say it as if it's like, there's human shields. And then, like, well, obviously the logical conclusion is, kill everybody. Yeah, right. You would never <laughs> right. accept that in any other scenario. If somebody goes, I give this example all the time, but if somebody goes into a, a school and one psycho with a gun is holding a gun to a kid's head, you wouldn't send a drone to kill 85 people at the school, including 37 toddlers with them, right? Yeah. Everybody would be like, whoa, you're a psycho. And if, well, they were using human shields. Like, what do you want me to do? Yeah. Not that. Not that is what I want you to do. And any reasonable person would see it. But the difference is, if it was Israelis in the building, they'd be like, oh, God, we got to be careful. Since it's Palestinians, like, who cares? That's the how they 400 think. that got that's killed it. in that refugee camp because they said there was one Hamas guy. In yes, the and they said that. Yes, that's what they yes. admitted, they too. Admitted they said, we're getting a Hamas on, guy, top Hamas guy. Live on CNN, the, the anchor was like, but you knew there were civilians there, women and children there. He's like, eh. That's war, yeah. man. That's, that's what they said to Wolf Blitzer. You made Wolf Blitzer look like he's a good journalist for yeah. five seconds. Yeah. How did you manage that? And, and the human shield point is also like completely militarily ineffective too. It's like, why would Hamas use a military strategy that doesn't work? It has no bearing whatsoever on whether Israel bombs them. So what is the point of using human shields over and over again? It's not like Israel's not bombing mosques and schools and protected buildings. Like they don't care. <laughs> it's just, it, it's so illogical and dehumanizing. And really, like you said, I mean, when you look at the death toll, that, that's what it's there for. I mean, that's what the human shield narrative is there for. So then it just makes you devalue Palestinian life. Um, not that the U.S. had a real consistent record on care and concern for human rights and, you know, sticking to the, uh, the uh, laws of war making and making sure no war crimes are being committed by us or by our allies. But how do we ever go to another country? and claim to have the moral high ground on anything ever again when we're here sending the bombs that are being dropped on Palestinian babies. I mean, I think that that's a, one of the most important points is how do we, where do we go from here? The credibility of the Israeli military, I mean, if you want to talk about propaganda, their, their credibility is completely shot. We shouldn't believe one word coming out of any Israeli official's mouths because they lie. They lie, they lie, they lie. And they project and deflect everything that they're doing onto the victims. What, how, how is the U.S. going to have a shred of credibility moving forward? It's stunning. It's stunning the arrogance, right, to call ceasefire repugnant. These are Democrats. These are the people supposed to be speaking for progressives. I, I honestly have no idea what political strategy they are thinking moving forward because like, like we were saying, I mean, Gen Z is completely out. Like there's, I don't see anyone participating in the political system moving forward. I mean, I'm, I'm done. You know, like I was, I was involved in the Bernie movement. I was just like, now I'm looking at him and I'm just like, what in the hell is going on? I mean, it, in a way it just shattered that last little bit of illusion of that there's hope for change within the political establishment because this is just the most egregious example of a genocide happening only because we are supplying the weapons and we are supp supplying the political backing for it and it doesn't matter what the people think you guys we see the huge dichotomy with polling and we see people out in the streets every day doing direct actions and it has no weight 
on the decisions of our political representatives. And it is shocking. And in a way, it's it kind of just breaks that last line of like, maybe there's hope. Yeah. I think the the craziest part to me is like, there came a time after the war on terror when the consensus became, geez, what the hell were we thinking? Right. You have right. every Democratic politician was like, of course, the war in Iraq, a horrible atrocity and a misstep. And even Donald Trump winning Republican debates in 2016, saying that, you know, war was stupid. We never should have done it. It broke the Middle East, et cetera. And we got this false sense of like, OK, maybe we grew at least a little bit where we're not outwardly celebrating the illegal invasion or torture. And it's like, thank God that the heart of the war on terror era is over. Right. With with uh, Biden pulling out of Afghanistan, you got this sense of like, oh, maybe we've evolved just a little bit. And then literally in the span of like four days, we, we realize like, oh, no, we snapped right back into that hysterical manic mindset where virtually the entire government, I think you said it was 8% in Congress have called for a ceasefire. The rest of them are vicious and bloodthirsty and are fine with funding and arming a genocide. And it's like, wow, we didn't learn anything. And then you realize like, again, and historically everybody looks back, never again when it comes to, you know, a genocide or, or atrocities like this. And then it's like, you see that when it actually happens, there are there's riotous applause where people are basically saying again, do yeah. it again. And it's like we learn nothing. It really is. It's so shocking for uh, our humanity. But I will say the silver lining to end on is that, yes, this is more politically engaged than, than I've seen anybody when it comes to getting boots on the ground in the streets out there saying this is horrible. We have to end this blocking ships that have weapons bound for Israel. I looked at that. That's the best direct action I think I've ever seen in my life. It reminds me of, you know, Noam Chomsky. He would always say, I'm against political violence. But if you told me to pick a situation with political violence, that I think it's moral and just. He gave the example of like destroying a ship full of weapons that, you know, or a plane full of weapons that was bound for Vietnam, where, you know, it's going to be used on landless peasants to basically mm. massacre innocent people. He said is the moral thing and the ethical thing to actually do that property damage to make sure that these people don't die. And this is like perfectly analogous to that, in my opinion, where it's like this is the right kind of activism and protesting. And that's the thing that gives me hope is that some people are clearly waking up. Right. I mean, the fact that civil rights were the police and the government on the right side of civil rights. No, they have to be forced. They have to be forced. But I, I, I'm in the same camp as you, Kyle. When all of this happened, I just thought, wow, we really have learned nothing from the Iraq war. The credulity. I mean, the fact that people just ate up whatever they were being told and the bloodlust and genocidal incitement against Arabs and Muslims just resurrected in a heartbeat as if it never really went away. And I think that's what we see. A lot of this is just bubbling beneath the surface, whether it's hatred of gay people. Um, it, it's the bigots that are emboldened to come out of the shadows and we need to force these people back in the shadows and do the right thing and stand on the right side of history because this moment is a historic moment. And we will look back at this moment generations from now and think, how did we let this happen? Yeah. And what did we do to stop it? I completely and, agree. And that's what that's where we got to go. We have to stand in solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters because the political establishment is not going to be on the right side of this one. They are perpetuating this horrific policy and it's up to the people to demand justice, accountability, and freedom. Yeah.
And I guess that is the one hopeful thing is with the Iraq war, unfortunately, the people, a lot of the people were fully on board. With this one, you see this huge gap between what the people actually want and the two-thirds of the American people, including a majority of Republicans, calling for a ceasefire versus the political establishment. Um, Abby, tell people where they can find you and where they can find your work. Check out Gaza Fights for Freedom. It's a very essential movie right now that gives a lot of good context. It's available in Spanish, Arabic, a ton of different languages. Go to GazaFightsForFreedom.com. Check it out. We're working on a new film called Earth's Greatest Enemy. Should be out early next year about the U.S. military being the world's largest polluter. Hmm, um, thank you so much, you guys. Really appreciate you covering this issue. It means a lot. Well, we Great appreciate you, you, Abby. Yeah, we appreciate you and the work that you've done and the voice of moral clarity that you always bring. Thank you. Thanks, guys. 